If you would please be seated and turn with me to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. In this psalm, God recounts, or the psalmist Asaph recounts the history of God's people, his grace towards them and their subsequent rebellion against him. The psalm is quite long, 72 verses, so we will read just a selected uh, few amount of those verses. But beginning in Psalm 78, verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of the battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them by cloud and all night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they still sinned more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart and by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? And therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob, and his anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them grain of of the heaven, and man ate of the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind, and he rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall into the midst of the camp all around their dwellings. And they ate and were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the men of Israel. Skipping down to verse 38. 
Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Verse 67. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah. Mount Zion, which he loves. And he built a sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, and his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We pray now, Father, that you would speak through it, that you would impress it upon our hearts, and that you would so turn our hearts towards Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So, being from the South, uh, one of my things that I love, but I really don't get to drink that much, is, is sweet tea. Uh, growing up, my, my mom always had it in the fridge. It was what we drank with every meal. It was what we drank lots of times in between meals. And I still love it, but really the only time that I ever get to drink it anymore is when I you know, perhaps may wind up at her house for a Sunday lunch or just don't want my jaws to be locked by the lemonade at Chick-fil-A and so choose sweet tea instead. But isn't it, how, isn't it funny how, how you can drink sweet tea beside perhaps like a chocolate cake or, or a blueberry cobbler or something else very sweet like Oreo ice cream and like not taste it at all. Besides something sweet, sweet tea is just like drinking water. But when you get the same glass of tea and you put it beside the main course of the meal, you know, a potluck, a roast or something like that, or if you just drink it by itself, it's refreshing. It's wonderful. It's glorious. It's, 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 it is truly sweet when beside something else that's not so sweet. You know, behind the dessert, it's almost unnoticeable. But beside the main course, it's a wonderful treat that's delightful to the tongue and refreshing to the body. And I think that the free grace of God is much the same. It can become like sweet tea beside the dessert at times. Oh, we know it's there. We know God's free grace is there. We know it's good. But sometimes it's hard to taste. Sometimes it's, it's hard to enjoy. Sometimes it's hard to, to notice. But, but when pictured against the background of sin and rebellion and divine wrath, the sweetness stands out again. And that's what this psalm is doing. It's putting the, the free and wonderful grace of God against the background of forsaken grace and wrath so that we can really taste it and really experience it. 
And why, why is it doing this? What, what's the goal? Well, obviously, it's to, to show us the glory of God and reunite our hearts with, with God himself and, and to, to reinstill inside of us the sweetness of God's grace. But, but the author has a specific purpose that he lists in the psalm for why it's written. It's so that we would tell them to our children, children yet unborn, and that they would tell their children so that they would set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments. That's the positive purpose. The negative purpose is that they should not be like their fathers. A stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The point of the psalm is for the the wonderful sweetness of God's free grace to stand out so that we might pass it down to the generations and so that our, 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 our... kids and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren would also know and experience and taste the sweetness of God's free grace. But first, the background from which that free grace stands out as sweet. And so one of the first things that we notice in the psalm is that, is that God's grace is easily forsaken. Okay, so what do I mean by forsaking the free grace of God? Well, I mean like taking it for granted Uh, knowing it's there, but either looking past it or looking by it, overlooking it instead of living in light of it. It's knowing the free grace of God, but, but just kind of brushing it aside. Which is exactly what the people in the psalm do. It's, it's, it's having seen and known and experienced the blessings of God, His expressions of His grace, and instead of living in light of them, We turn our back on them, which is what the people of God do uh, in verses 9 through 20. Verses 9 to 11 give us kind of a big picture explanation of Israel's history, okay? The uh, the Ephraimites failed to trust God on the day of battle, and instead they cowered in fear. The people of God uh, going on did not keep God's covenant. They refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown him, shown them. Okay, what wonders? Uh, what works had he shown them that they, uh, did they forget? Well, it's listed explicitly there in verses 12 to 16. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt in the fields of Zoan. So we're talking about the Exodus here. He divided the sea. And let them pass through it and made the water stand like a heap. Okay, so he miraculously provided his people a way to escape. The slavery in Egypt, verse 14, in the daytime he led them with a cloud and all night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness so that they could drink and made them flow down like rivers. What's listed there in verses 12 to 16 are undeniable expressions of God's free and abounding grace. How God miraculously took care of and nurtured and protected and provided for his people. But how did his people respond? Immediately thereafter in verses 17 to 20 we see how they respond. Yet they still sinned more against him. They rebelled, they tested, they demanded the food that they craved. They spoke against God. 
taunting him. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? Can he also give bread and provide meat for his people? In light of God's undeniable, uh, the undeniable expressions of God's free grace, the people forsake such grace. They walk away from it. They, they, they act as if it had not just happened. And the same thing is repeated in verses 40 to 58, some of which we read, some of which we didn't. In verses 40 to 41, the people rebelled, they grieved him, they tested him, they provoked him. Why? Well, verses 42 to 40, uh, 55 tell us. It's because, verse 42, they didn't remember. They didn't remember uh, the plagues that God had sent upon the people of Egypt. Verse 42, they did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt, how he turned their rivers to blood, how he sent among them swarms of flies, how he gave their crops to destroying locusts, how he destroyed their vines with hail, how he gave over their cattle to the hail. Going on down in verse 53, he led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out the nations before them. He appointed for them a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. But again, how did the people respond? Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies. They tested, they rebelled, they did not keep His testimonies. They turned away, they acted treacherously, they provoked Him to anger and they moved Him to jealousy. It's interesting how not only here but many times in Scripture we see God pouring out His grace freely and abundantly upon His people and blessing them. And, and then the very next thing that we read uh, in, the, in the next few verses, the next chapter, is the people just acting like it didn't happen at all. The people of God forsaking the grace of God. So how, how does this how do we do this? Okay, the scriptures interpret our hearts, they interpret our actions, and obviously they're not written because these things don't happen. They happen all the time. And so how, do, how does this happen in my life on a daily basis? Well, kind of on a smaller scale, this is what happens every time that we sin against God. Right? I, a Christian, have been the, the, the recipient of God's free grace in Christ, and yet that never seems to be enough for me. Because in the moment, I think that my sin will give me something that, that, that Christ himself has not or cannot or that I've just forgotten that he can give me altogether. Such as. Like when I utter belittling words to other people, perhaps behind their backs. Right? So that I can you know, have an up on them. Get a step ahead. Which only basically shows my insecurity all the while, I've been given a magnificent, I have been freely given security for who I am and what I'm worth in Christ. Or per perhaps it's anger. 
Right? In the moment, I think that, that my anger will satisfy me. It will give me the, the, just, the, the justice, the punishment, or, or the revenge that will make me happy, that will make me feel better. When the reality is, is that the only thing that's going to make me feel better is reconciliation with that per- person. With, the only thing that's going to make me feel better is by replicating and practicing the forgiveness of other people as God has forgiven me. Or, or perhaps it's, it's lust. You know, My lust will satisfy me. It will give me pleasure and delight and happiness when the reality is that lust never satisfied anyone. It makes promises that it cannot and will not ever be able to deliver on. Instead, true joy, true joy, not something fake, not a fake replacement, true joy has been given to, to us in Christ. That's how it happens on a smaller scale. That's how we forsake the grace of God on a smaller scale. We do it every time that we, that we enter into sin, that we enter into temptation. But it also happens on a much larger scale. Okay, some of us perhaps don't brag about these seasons in our lives, but some of us can remember seasons in our lives when we knew about the free grace of God, right? We knew all that was offered to us in Christ and had even perhaps tasted of it and seen it and experienced it, yet turned away. I'm talking about that, that kind of category of person that Hebrews 6, 4-6 to talks about. That those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, but then falls away. Some of us remember times in our lives either before we were converted or perhaps early on in our conversions or perhaps in a season when we were backsliding. When we knew all that was ours in Christ, yet ran to the things of the world instead. Right? Those things will satisfy me. Those things will make me whole. Those things will make me happy. We remember those seasons, but, but some of us perhaps maybe are, are in that season of life right now. Some of us here this morning are in that situation, thinking perhaps maybe of middle schoolers, high schoolers, oh, but adults are not immune to this kind of thing either, where our eyes and our ears have been awakened to all that the world has to offer. You know, perhaps the thought crosses our minds somewhat often that that if we just weren't under our parents' roof and we just didn't have to go to church and we just didn't have to be Christians, then I could have all the fun in the world. And if that's, if that's you this morning, if that's us this morning, if, if we're just waiting for the day that, 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 I don't, you know, that I don't have to listen to my parents, that I can just make my own choices so that I can really just make the choice to walk away from the church, to walk away from God, to forsake the grace of God. Let, let me just tell you this morning, I love you. Please don't do that. Many of us in this room have done that before, okay? And we can tell you, that's not fun. The world never delivers on the happiness and the joy and the promises and the, and the satisfaction that it offers We can only think of how the richest people in the world are usually the most miserable people in the world. 
Uh, they're, the, they're the people that get to experience the best of what the world has to offer, yet are absolutely miserable in this life. Literally ask anyone in this room about their, their experience as a Christian as they were growing up, who perhaps walked away from God, walked away from the church, walked away from Christianity for a season. Ask them how that was. And they'll probably tell you it's the absolutely most miserable season of their lives. And so instead of trying so hard to walk or run away from the church and forsake the grace of God, I would just invite you, let's just have a conversation about what that, mean and what that means and what's that, what that's like. Because nothing outside of Christ is worth living for. And there's certain, certainly nothing outside of Christ worth dying for, which is the other kind of darker aspect of the psalm. The second contrasting mechanism the psalm uses to emphasize the free grace of God later is, is how the wrath of God is not just a, a theological concept, but it's an experiential reality. In verses 21 to 31, following the people's grumbling in the wilderness, God, God responds. In verses 21 to 22, the Lord's wrath was kindled at the lack of trust in Him and in response to His wonders. In verses 23 to 29, the Lord showed Him, or showed the people that, that, that He could do exactly what they doubted He could not do, or what they doubted He could do. And then in verses 30 to 31, but before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them. And he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. To the Israelites, in verses 30 and 31, the wrath of God became not just a theological concept, but an experiential reality for those who had grumbled against God and the wilderness. And the same thing happens in verses 56 to 63 that we did not read. Following God's giving, leading his people out of Egypt uh, with uh, recounting the, the plagues and so on and so forth. And then he provides his people a place to live. Provides them a, a land to dwell in for the first time ever. And on the heels of God pouring out His grace in verses 43 to 45 and verses 56 to 58, the people delighted themselves in idols. Idols made with their own hands that could do nothing for them. And in verses 59 to 64, the wrath of God becomes a reality again. In verses 59 to 60, He removes His presence from them. The same events are recounted in 1 Samuel 4. In verses 61 to 64, he leaves the people to fight their enemies by themselves and no longer fights for them, which automatically means that the people of Israel are going, to get, are going to get leveled. And it does. It leads to the extreme loss of their men, 30,000 according to 1 Samuel 4.10. And then, and then the death of their priests. And then... When, when a mother who is having a child hears of how the, the glory 
of the Lord has departed from his people. She's so taken aback by that news that she would not even look at her newborn child, but named him Ichabod, that the glory of the Lord has departed. Because of the shock of the wrath of God expressed on his people by removing his glory from them, she couldn't even look at her infant. So God, God left his people, at least for a season, and it was, it was devastating. It was devastating, which is actually a, a pretty good working definition of, of the wrath of God itself. It's, it's devastation. When God removes his grace and his wrath enters in, the only thing that can be experienced is absolute devastation. Because God is, God is just. And God is holy. And God will not be trifled with. He won't, he won't be played with as a toy. We see in the scriptures from the beginning to the end that when God's free grace is forsaken and, and the people look in sinful things for what only he can give them, wrath follows. And sometimes immediately, like we see here in Psalm 78, and sometimes in eternity, certainly in eternity. This psalm shows us how the wrath of God moves, from, again, from a theological concept to, to an experiential reality. What, is this, what does this mean for us? Well, I, I think, you know, for, for some of us, maybe talking specifically to, to, to unbelievers here for a moment, or those of us who have, who have grown up in the church but just become uninterested in Christ. It's a very easy thing to go on about life as if God's wrath doesn't exist. It's a very easy thing to go on about life as things just kind of move on, right? As, as one day turns into the next and never really give any thought or consideration to who God is. Holy and just. And never really give any thought to how that expresses itself in dealing with sin, which is his wrath. This psalm is encouraging us to, to take a harder look at the wrath of God. And I'm, I'm not, you know, I may have grown up in a Southern Baptist church and you know, it was way out in the middle of nowhere that talked about the wrath of God a lot, but, but I'm not one of those hell and brimstone kind of preachers who, who preaches the wrath of God every Sunday so as to try to scare people to believe in Christ. That doesn't work. Scaring people to believe does not work. The only thing that, that leads to true and lasting faith is proclamation of the Word of God as a whole and people attaching, loving Christ for themselves and being transformed by the Spirit. So I'm not one of those guys who, who just preaches the wrath of God all the time so as to, to try to manipulate people. But it is a fact. God is holy. God is just. And God will one day execute his wrath upon those who overlook or forsake his grace. So let me just encourage you this morning 
Don't presume upon God's, or God's common grace for another day. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. The scriptures talk about the fact that, that today is the day of salvation. Right? They talk about all you have to do is con- confess with your mouth that Jesus is, is Lord and, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Today is the day of salvation. Today. Come to Christ. Be set free from sin and shame and misery. And Christ will give you a life of contentment and joy and satisfaction in Him. He's the only place where you can find those commodities. And they're found freely. Right? The free grace of God really is and truly is absolutely free. Which is what the background of grace forsaken and the wrath of God highlights so well. Uh, All morning I've been using a word to modify God's grace, the word free. And that's because it is free. If you look at the entire psalm as a whole, 72 verses long, 30 lines of that psalm talk about the actions of Israel. And not one of them that I'm aware of talk about positive actions from Israel. They're all about they forgot, they rebelled, they taunted, they, they, they forsook. They're all negative. But what else populates the psalm? What's well, how God continues to pour out His grace even after His people forsake Him time and time again. God continues to pour out His grace on a people despite their rebelliousness. Verses 32 to 39, pick up on this. In verses 32 to 37, the, the people seemingly repent, but we learn later that it's a false, repent, uh, false repentance. The people rebelled in response to God's miracles of bread and meat. They flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast towards them. But then in verses 38 to 39... Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Same thing as highlighted in verses 67 to 72 where God rejected the tent of Joseph and he did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he did choose Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. And and what does he do when he chooses her? He builds her up. He, He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes and brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel inheritance. With upright heart, He shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. We may be tempted to to think at times 
that we might, we need to earn a seat in this room. Or that we need to earn our place in heaven. It's a lie. We see from this psalm that God's, the people do nothing to earn the blessings that God has given them. God's free grace is on display front and center. It is a lie that you have to be a put-together person to be a Christian, to have a seat in this room. This room is, is full of people, myself included, who are not perfect in the least, who mess up all the time. I mean, you could, you could actually level the charge of hypocrites against all of us, right? We, we are reluctant to forgive our brothers and our sisters and other people, even though we've been forgiven much, right? We tell people how to live, and then we live in sin simultaneously, uh, we, we can be judgy, but yet our feelings are hurt so bad when we are judged. But that doesn't make us non-Christians. Being a hypocrite doesn't make you a non-Christian. What it makes you is someone who needs the free grace of God. Someone who is in need. Someone who is helpless. Someone who cannot save themselves. You don't have to be a, a, a put-together person to feel comfortable in this room, despite how many of us look like we actually are. We're not. We don't have to be perfect. And we don't have to be perfect because Christ already was for us. And we also don't have to undergo the wrath of God because Christ already has for us. And so let me invite you Come and drink of the free grace of God freely. Isaiah says in 55, chapter 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food incline your ear and come to me hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast sure love for David God's grace is free and Christ is yours this morning if you will have him he's yours for your joy He's yours for your contentment. He's yours for your satisfaction. He's yours for your justification. And all of that freely. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you do not demand perfection from us to be able to commune with you. We thank you that Christ is our perfection and we cling to him as our righteousness. We pray these things in his name.
Amen.